The following content is meant purely for educational and informational purposes and should not be relied upon as financial, investment, legal, tax, or any other professional advice. This is the Fundamentals Podcast, where we demystify crypto and help you navigate this ever-evolving internet-native economy. In this episode, we're joined by Alex, the head of gaming at Shima Capital, an early-stage VC firm investing in disruptive Web3 companies. Alex gives us an overview of the current state of the Web3 gaming market and walks us through the key trends, challenges, and potential opportunities within the space. Alex highlights the importance of looking beyond trends like play to earn and emphasizes the need to create net new experiences and novel monetization methods. He also discusses the role of token design, in-game economics, user acquisition and retention, building strong gaming communities, and the unlocks needed for Web3 gaming to go mainstream. Finally, we cover how Alex sources and analyzes potential investment opportunities and how Shima actively works with their portfolio companies. Tune in for a great episode about the fundamentals of Web3 gaming. One narrative when scrolling through crypto Twitter that I've come across quite often is that this upcoming cycle is the one where Web3 gaming will really take off. And to be honest, the same narrative is one that I came across quite often last cycle. And what I'm really looking forward to over this next session is instead of just seeing, you know, those short tweets of this is why you need to buy gaming tokens, etc., to understand what the actual fundamental drivers and unlocks will be that Web3 Gaming needs to really start unlocking its potential to be kind of that mass adoption uh, channel for crypto. So excited to have you on, Alex, uh, to learn a bit about Shima Capital and how you think about the current state of Web3 Gaming and its future. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me. Stoked to be here and excited kind of talk a little bit about how I'm thinking about things and kind of get that conversation going. I know people have been talking about it on crypto Twitter, but, um, you know, you can only do so much with a tweet. So better to have a long form combo. Very true. And uh, we want to understand the fundamentals. We want to understand the actual reasons not price action. We want to focus on what the actual innovations are that are happening at that level, what the innovations are that Web3 enables gaming to introduce, etc. But before we start diving into those details, it would be great if you just give a quick introduction of Shima Capital. So what your guys' purpose is in this space? Yeah, sure. So Shima is a little over 150 mil early stage fund, and we invest across all verticals of crypto. So even though I'm kind of leading the gaming efforts, we do a lot of things on DeFi, Infra, consumer, the full stack. I would say at a high level, what, what do we do? We, we try to get LPs exposure to the earliest stage of crypto companies. So for us, predominantly pre-seed, seed stage, we'll kind of push the needle on that, but it's very rarely that we go beyond that scope. And for us, a big, a big part of this is we're so deep in the weeds here. We, we try to be as thesis driven as possible. That's not always the case, right? You have to be opportunistic sometimes, but we generally try to look where we think the market might be going. Obviously, we don't have a crystal ball, so you have to weight probabilities into that and then allocate kind of accordingly to try to build a portfolio that we think represents where we think the space is headed. And, and to get an understanding of how you kind of position yourselves within this market of different funds in crypto, what would you say the main problem is that Shima solves for LPs? Yeah, I mean, for us, we're very crypto native, right? And I would say pretty much everybody on the team is relatively technical. So for us, we try to get really deep into what's kind of the unique unique insights that we have, right? If we're not on the ground building like some of these founders are, right? What, what do we see in the market that we can kind of relate to them? Maybe on the gaming side, some of the these companies might have a pretty prolific background in building games, but they're a little bit newer to Web3. So maybe we can help on the token design side, a variety of different things. But I think taking a step back for us, we're not just focused on one specific vertical. It's, hey, you kind of get this, you kind of get this call option on all verticals in crypto. And for us, it's, Hey, we want to find projects as early as possible so we can kind of build alongside them and build strong relationships across the entire ecosystem. That's great. And, and you mentioned that you're a generalistic fund investing across all verticals in crypto. Your focus, however, is on the gaming vertical. Could you speak a bit about what your day-to-day looks like as the head of gaming at Shima? And maybe to expand a bit on that question is why I'm asking is crypto is a bit of a wild west. There's a lot of noise. So... What do you do to filter out that noise? Where do you get the signals that you then decide to act on? Really good question. I think originally when you, when you get into crypto, right, it's, it's like these super compressed time cycles where you're just drinking from the fire hose and ingesting an obscene amount of information. And if you're going to crypto Twitter to kind of drink from the fire hose, it's like, hey, half these guys have animal profile pictures. Like, who do I know to trust? Where's the actual signal? And I think it just takes time to kind of filter, filter that out. 
takes time in terms of building relationships. You can understand, hey, here are some of the people that might think similar to me. Maybe I chat with those people more frequently, but then also here are people that you know might take the opposite side of those bets. So good to learn from those people as well. But a little bit more at a granular level, what does day-to-day -day look like? I know at some funds, there's, there's, there's a bit of a hierarchy where maybe the junior people are kind of screening deals, sourcing deals, and then they kind of float those to others within the fund to evaluate whether that might be something that the fund has an appetite for. And then maybe you offload portfolio management to like a platform team. And in my opinion, to be the best investor, you have to see all aspects of a company and you need to practice basically all aspects of the investor step. So for me, I'm, I'm constantly trying to source deals, constantly screening decks, taking pitch calls. But then at the same time, there's, there's a ton of deals that are getting passed around in crypto. So like you alluded to earlier, you have to find a way to kind of generate your own alpha or produce your own signal. So for me, a big part of this is just doing deep research into gaming, into the crypto tech staff stack, into consumer developments, kind of all of the above. I think for me, I'm like pretty fortunate that I'm just like a diehard gamer. Like I'm looking at the steam charts. I'm looking at like data.ai, the mobile charts multiple times every day. And that's just because I, I'm just obsessed with games, crippling addiction. And then you kind of tie that up with, I studied cryptography in school. So I just, there's two kind of pretty strong driving forces for me internally, where I just want to learn as much and push the space forward. Right. Cause at the end of the day, I'm a gamer. I want to play the new experiences. So for me, I just want kind of the segment to succeed and trying to do whatever I can at all costs to try to push it forward. So screening, pitch calls, my own personal deep research, trying to form my own theses, portfolio company support, right? Help a lot with product, go to market, token design, how do you monetize with crypto in new ways? And then internal calls to discuss as a team, because we work remotely where we can kind of align and be like, Hey, here's kind of where we think the space is headed. And then bounce ideas off of each other in a world where each of us go deep on our own specific verticals, but then come back up for air and talk about the general market as a whole with a little bit more breadth. That, that's really well said. And I think also important to emphasize the fact that at this stage where you're coming from, your starting point, having been an avid gamer yourself and having studied cryptography, you've been quite native to the industry from both perspectives. So you're in a good starting place to understand where to do research, where to look. Because I feel in general, if we think of crypto from an investor's point of view, the barrier to entry for a researcher has been quite high because we don't have these standardized or like single go-to places where you can start doing research. You don't just read a report because the topic you might be studying, that report isn't out there. No one's like really put anything cohesive together about that topic beforehand. So it, it's not that easy to get into it. And I feel especially with gaming, that really kind of um, is exponentially harder. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, a big part of crypto is finding those groups where you're sharing the information, right? And then you can kind of break up the pieces of things that you want to research. I think another thing that's tough about gaming is Gaming is just a brutal industry, hard stop. And then there's kind of been these generational developments of arcade games to box games to free to play. And some would say maybe Web3 is kind of an extension of a layer of free to play that you can kind of add on the back end. Um, I think that there's been a lot of advocates for each of these developments, but there's been a ton of pushback. But when you're in the business of venture, you're looking for the non-consensus bets, right? So to me, where people are the loudest, that's where I'm not going to just dive head first, but maybe that's where I'll spend a little bit more time researching. So I think that's like a way to kind of use counter signal, right? In the same way that you're kind of looking for people to discuss certain ideas with. There's also kind of people that you want to track to understand, hey, here's maybe the other side of that opinion. And I'm going to research as deeply as I can their position. And I think for me, this is something that I've had kind of a crazy path, but I used to be an IP attorney in law school. And when you're a litigator, you're pushed to basically create the best possible argument for the opposing side. And that's kind of the way I look at all deals and all potential innovative products that are being built in this space. Yeah, that, being an IP attorney as well, actually, I missed that on your background, but that is also an incredible addition to the mix of how you're able to look at everything related to digital property rights, because that is such a big element in gaming as well. But that's awesome. As this is the first session where we really dive a bit into the Web3 gaming market, I thought it would be great if we start with you walking us through what Web3's core value proposition really is in gaming. I think the way I try to think of it is there's basically two buckets, at least the way that I kind of see the, the industry or the vertical is 
you're basically looking to invest into games or products that will compete with what exists today. So it can't just be a clone of something that existed on traditional gaming that now has an NFT. I don't think that's sufficiently differentiated, especially in a world where distribution is so tough. So for me, I'm kind of looking for either A, net new experiences that are enabled by blockchain, or B, new methods of monetization that again are enabled by blockchain. So a net new experience might be something where you're leveraging the persistent state of a blockchain like Ethereum to affect the game in some way where there's this decentralized aspect to that state. So to give a concrete example, maybe you have a game like a roguelite where it's traditionally a single player game and you use the persistent state of blockchain to create this almost asynchronous kind of competitive, cooperative multiplayer aspect, whatever you have it. So that's kind of one way to look at it, in my opinion. And then the other one is a method of monetization, right? Where, okay, you look at what Mythical Games is doing with secondary markets. You can do it in a way so you're still abiding by the, the rules of Google Play or the App Store. And you're adding kind of this new layering of monetization that doesn't get the, those, those big tech companies pissed off. So I think those are kind of the high level. I think on the methods of monetization, that's something that can exist at the content side or the infrastructure side. But on the infrastructure side, it's a little bit difficult to build for games that really don't exist yet. I think that will come a little bit after or be created by the people that are creating the games themselves. And they see the gaps and they're like, okay, well, we need to build this because it doesn't exist yet. So high level, then new experiences, methods of monetization is kind of where I start. And then kind of what I alluded to earlier in terms of the evolution of the space, you had these arcades where people went in and then they kind of used coins to play games, right? And the coins were a way to basically gate the progression in a game, right? Maybe you have a couple of lives, right? For playing Mario, maybe you're playing a fighting game where you lose and then you're out and you have to kind of re-up. Re and I think kind of the medium or the platform through which you played the games somewhat kind of enabled this derivation of what the games would look like. So you kind of fast forward and you go to box games, right? Okay, well now you pay, I think it was like 20 or 30 bucks for a Nintendo cartridge. And now there's, there's not this replayability that's ba baked into the form factor that you're playing the game. And then when you switch to free to play, it, it completely changes again, right? It's like, okay, well, you're a little bit more focused on retention because you want people to keep coming back, right? You entice them with the free game and then you've got live ops that keeps them engaged. I think Web3 will be a bit of a natural extension of the free-to-play. I think the jury's still kind of out on how big of a transition that will be. But in my opinion, this is, this is kind of like the natural evolution in a world where, hey, you bought a skin in free-to-play and that's just kind of a license to use the asset while the game is live, while those servers are live. Now, I think some people will push back on the Web3 side of things and be like, okay, well, you're buying a JPEG, right? That's just a, pointing to a URL. Like, that's... That's not really living on chain. And I agree. I think that's a valid, that's a valid pushback. But you know, that, that might be where things were. That might be where some things are now, but that's not necessarily where things are going to be in the future. Very well laid out. Thank you. And in terms of where we are right now, the Web3 gaming market, like I mentioned at the beginning, a few cycles, we've already seen people say, okay, this is the big unlock. We've seen Axie's big rise and fall and them kind of reinventing their whole model to build more sustainable. And that's happened with a lot of models out there. And I feel that we've yet to see any gaming model that has really kind of cracked the code as to what works best in crypto. How would you currently describe the state of like on-chain gaming? And if possible, how would you compare it to like the evolution of more traditional gaming models? Where, where would we be on that evolution curve? I think the important thing to kind of remember is most of these games were funded two years ago. Right. I think Axie is a bit of an outlier. And some of the games that we saw last cycle were developed rather quickly. And I think you kind of had Axie coming in early, but then you had a lot of these other later entrants where they were built by gamers, but maybe crypto native gamers, I would call them, where people were leveraging a lot of what they learned from DeFi Summer and kind of creating these almost DeFi like products that were wrapped in gamified skins which I think is great. I mean, for me, long-term, the thesis is most things will become gamified with time and there will be more tokens and less in the future. And that's why I'm spending so much time on the gaming side of things. But back to kind of the earlier point, most of these games were funded two years ago. So it takes time to build 
uh, prototypes, right? Like it takes time to build a successful game. And further, it takes time to test and iterate on that game, right? Most games are not successful when they launch. Most games are in soft launch, right? Look at Supercell. Obviously, this is kind of a, an edge case, but they bring games to soft launch, they launch them in the US, and they kill those games off. And these are like AAA mobile games. Um, especially in mobile and in free-to-play, that market is just brutal. So I, I think we had a lot of people that were asking the question of when game, right? In the same, in a, in a world where that sort of question rhymes with when token, right? And I think that's a little bit of one of the kind of flaws in the space. It's like, hey, who are you really building for? Are you building for the people that are going to kind of flip? Or are you building for kind of like a core golden go cohort of gamers that exist on chain or spend a fair amount of time on chain? And I think the latter is a little bit of a better approach. So, you know, notably devs had to build games. Then they had to build some of the corresponding infra in-house, a lot of which is unproven. And you didn't really have too many case studies beyond Axie until this year, right? You've got Across the Ages is a TCG that's on the App Store that's doing pretty well. You've got Mythical Games, like NFL Rivals, and then the racing game like Nitro Nation, I think. So a lot of people have been kind of sitting on their hands waiting for the case studies, and we're seeing them. And I think we'll see considerably more over the next year. And I think we'll start to see games that look a little bit different than the games of 2021, games that might be built by some, some devs who have a little bit more experience, but also just have had more time to kind of test what the blockchain implementation implementations look like for the game. So looking forward, seeing a lot of appetite for web three, especially abroad. I'm in the U S I think, especially in Asia where games are heavily financialized, you can kind of tap into that consumer nature of, Hey, people are intimately familiar with going to an arcade and putting coins in to play the game. You can think of tokens and games as a, in a similar way by design. And in the West, people don't really have the same affinity to arcades. So I think there's like consumer behavior that needs to be thought through. And in the West, it's a little bit more crypto curious, I would say today. And in the East, I, th I think they're leaning into it a little bit more. I'm glad you mentioned Supercell. It's, I'm originally from Finland, so I've become pretty familiar with their model, having grown up kind of in the startup scene here, got to listen to how Ilka has pitched it and how that cell-based, innovate fast, kill fast model has really been the catalyst behind their success. Do you think that sort of model works in Web3? I haven't really seen too many gaming studios push out games and just kill them and then come out with a new one. I feel there's more of this approach where you put out a game and the community becomes kind of financially attached to it. And then the gaming company is in a position where it's kind of even hard to kill that game. So is that kind of a web three issue that a model that Supercell works with is like very hard to replicate in this space? Or is there something else there? I think Supercell is in a very unique position where they have the capital and they have the recurring revenue to do that. I don't think uh, many other studios have the opportunity to take as many shots on goal. So I think TLDR is Supercell is uniquely suited to kill games off that I think in other, in other realms would, would not be possible. That being said, what I like about Supercell's approach that I think people can lean into is leveraging kind of the, the science or the data of mobile games, right? When you have a game that's on mobile, I know obviously in a post IDFA era, this is a little bit more difficult, but you can tap into the numbers in a way that you can't really on console. So like, for example, when you look at like Nintendo Switch, like the only data that you can really pull is like the bestsellers list. Whereas if you go to Steam, you can get a little bit more insight into like wish lists, concurrent players, what are kind of the most purchased games of the day, of the week, et cetera. And then you get access to even more granular data at the mobile level. So for me, I spent a little bit more time on mobile just because not, I think the market's easier, but I think it's a little bit less of an art. I still think it's an art to design games, but there's more data that you have access to. So probabilistically you can de-risk certain aspects of that investment in a way that you can't de-risk for other platforms, right? At the end of the day, coming in at pre-seed or seed, it's the riskiest stage to be investing. But at the same time, there, there's bigger upside. And we as investors need to find ways to de-risk those opportunities, right? One way to do that is in diligence as you're evaluating the potential deal. Another way is how you kill risk between the stage that you invest in and the next possible stage. So 
when I'm looking at successful publishers in traditional gaming, I'm trying to identify, okay, well, how do they figure out whether a game will have a high likelihood or some amount of likelihood of success? But how do you reverse engineer that when you're evaluating these new studios? Yeah, that makes sense. And even further building on that, I have a question in mind that I'm going to try to see if I'm able to articulate, but Supercell is able to put out these games that they can kill fast without having the players or the community get kind of too mad or upset about it because they aren't that financially tied to a game necessarily because you don't have similar in-game assets that are perceived to have monetary value that you would have in a Web3 game that has put out NFTs or a liquid token. So even if a Web3 studio had similar resources to something like Supercell and they were able to experiment and kill off games, do you think the barrier to do that is much higher in Web3 because of these in-game assets and players becoming more financially attached and thus making it harder for a team to be able to maintain their reputation while killing off games and causing players to lose perceived value? Or is that something that Web3 gamers just kind of need to get used to that these early stage experimental projects, if I get involved with them early on, I I will carry a certain amount of financial risk as well. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. I I think I know where you're going. So for me, I think it's a go-to-market problem. We lived in a previous world where people were selling land, selling assets before the game was live, right? And there will still be games that do that. But to me, then that means you kind of have this like albatross for the community where it's like, okay, well, what does this game look like? Also, who are you directing those sales to? Like, there are some gamers that are going to speculate, but there are a lot of gamers that are fed up with pre-orders of the past past decade or so and they want to wait to see the game or play the game until they decide whether they're going to cut a check so this go-to-market issue extends to the users that you're going out to acquire but it also means okay well maybe you need to reconsider how you launch those nfts right or maybe you launch the game first and then you get the players engaged and maybe they can earn the nft right by playing the game i think that's probably a little bit more of a productive way to launch a game. Now, obviously the case studies are kind of being written, but this is something that I'm spending a little bit more time on. And I think to your question of like, hey, do people just have to be okay with projects getting killed? I mean, yeah, you got to do your own research, right? If you're investing in an NFT project or a game, buying those NFTs and the game hasn't launched yet, like that's kind of the risk that you're taking on. There's pros and cons, right? It's people are in crypto for different reasons, but I think I think it's a go-to-market issue, right? It's like, hey, you should be focused on what users you're trying to go out and acquire. That's kind of the first question that I'm asking any deal that I'm looking at. It's like, okay, are you trying to grow the pie? Are you trying to take a slice of the pie? If you're trying to grow the pie, what's the new market that you're kind of attacking? And if you're trying to take a slice of the pie, like, why are players going to play your game versus any other game on the market, right? And that, this kind of goes to my earlier point about the clones of Web2 games or traditional games that have Web3 features. Like, is that enough? Maybe. But... Generally speaking, I think it's probably not enough to convince a gamer. So that's why I'm so focused on this like net new experiences, right? As a gamer, you buy these games, like you have your comfort food, right? You have your, maybe you play Counter-Strike, maybe you play League, whatever. But people want to experiment, right? They want to experiment with VR. They want to experiment with net new experiences. And I feel like there's been a lot of staleness in the gaming industry. And I think this is a unique opportunity to leverage new platforms and new networks like blockchain to create these experiences. Yeah, very very well said. You answered the exact question that I was trying to articulate. So thanks for the help there. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, move, moving on to like the net new experiences and also the new monetization models that you alluded to earlier. Could you speak about the basics of an in-game economy in Web3? So what are these actual net new experiences and monetization models that these games have introduced and how do they also present new economic opportunities for gamers themselves? Yeah, I think this is a, a, a question that's difficult to answer right now in terms of, hey, what's successful, what's working. There's a lot of things that will be tried and are currently kind of being developed where I, I don't think it'll be so different from free to play today. You know, traditionally, if you're looking at free to play, you're either monetizing through in-app purchases, IEPs or, or ads or some combination thereof. I think for a blockchain game, it, you could probably do some revenue on ads, but you're probably going to be more focused on IAPs. 
So if you use that sort of monetization logic, that can help you filter the types of content that you think might be suited in the near to medium term. So in other words, hyper-casual games, like games from what Voodoo kind of previously produced, those games traditionally monetized through ads, right? Maybe 70, 60, 70% of the revenues from ads. In contrast, if you kind of go down the scale towards core games, then those games traditionally monetized through IEPs, they probably don't have ads. That might be something that is conducive to a secondary market or token syncs that can be implemented in some, some interesting ways. Now, I think what's, what's a little bit more interesting is kind of what we've seen out of Korea and some other areas with the publisher model where you have a token that kind of serves as this on-ramp into an ecosystem of Web3 titles. And then the value ideally sticks within that ecosystem and it flows across the titles as more and more titles are released. And then you have something where you can basically play around with soft currencies at the individual game level, but you have this platform token that enables you to move value across each of those soft currencies. To me, this is a way where you can kind of delineate any sort of potential contagion between the currency in the game and the currency at the platform. I think one of the things that we learned from Axie was the AXS Axie governance token was, was linked with SLP, kind of that, that gas rewards token. So one of the issues there is high level, it's, it's token design. And when you have an issue with one of those tokens that quickly taints the other token. I think what we're trying to figure out now is a, how do you build kind of a robust token economy? Does this require one token, two tokens, three tokens, et cetera? I think the jury's still kind of out. I relayed some of my thoughts, but to me, again, in a similar way that you will put a game into soft launch and iterate, iterate, iterate. Unfortunately, there are not a ton of games in this ecosystem that are, have massive funding. So you don't have those shots on goal. So collectively. You're going to be looking at this industry and saying, okay, well, this project tried this design and this project tried that. And then over time, you will see this kind of, um, this, this refinement of that, that token design. So what does monetization look like? It's, I think a lot of it is still up in the air, but I think there's a lot of opportunity too. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Now reading through your Twitter, I've noticed that you've been critical on some traditional gaming models on their focus on monetization over gameplay. And now to speak about this topic for Web3 Gaming, what would you say are the main things that on-chain games can do to kind of address this problem? Yeah, I'm trying to think through uh, what some of these tweets are. Uh, but I think the overarching issue I have is over-financializing the game, right? If you want a game to be 100% financialized, that's fine. But then you have to know what the audience is that you're catering to, right? You can't conflate the diehard speculator gambler with the person who just wants to enjoy the game, right? These are two very different archetypes of users and you can design for each of them. You can try to design for them both, but then your core loops within the game need to be, you know, distinguished between the two. And I think generally speaking, people were just kind of creating the game that they wanted to create and then kind of releasing it out into the wild. And that was something that was a little bit less calculated and intentional than it could have been. In terms of this over-indexing on monetization, I think there's a world in which certain games should be directed to kind of this play to earn nature. I know, I know that that like phrase is super taboo, but like you can design a game where you have different loops that are directed towards different gamers, as I said, right? So in other words, you can have a game that has one particular loop that's geared towards people that do want to play to earn, maybe, maybe parts of Southeast Asia. And then maybe that resource that they're generating is the only way in which people can play a PVP type of game mode, right? And then that creates demand for that token, which inevitably creates demand for the NFTs that people are using at the top of the ladder who are also going to be earning these rewards. So it's kind of a high level articulation, but for me, I think you need to start with like what Who's going to play your game? Why are people going to play your game versus other games? And then how are you going to retain those users when people are constantly producing new games? And I think, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, like I'm not playing a game, me personally as a gamer or spending money because I can see some secondary market that's going to be tacked on on the back end. Like I don't play CS or Valorant 
because I want to make money off of the assets. Some people can do that. And that's maybe the Steam market is dedicated to those speculators, right? But like at the same time, if Valorant added a secondary market, would I be maybe a little bit more inclined to spend more money on it? Maybe. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm spending the money because I want to support the developers. I'm spending the money because I want to play a good game. I want to like, yeah, I want to flex and create this digital identity. I'm not doing it to make money, but there are gamers who I think will do that. So I think monetization is very interesting in crypto because you can direct gameplay loops to new archetypes of gamers. And that's where the increasing of the pie comes in, right? You get to bring in these speculators in a way that previously you were not able to. So how do you design a game that accommodates those types of users in a net new way? I don't have a great answer, but these are a couple of things that are constantly bouncing around my head. Yeah, 100%. The one-size-fits-all game development model is most likely not the optimal one. So there's a lot of work to do there. But if we think about this verticalization of games moving more from this one-size-fits-all, fortunately, to more specific focus areas, what trends or verticals in the current Web3 gaming market stand out to you and catch your interest the most? This is something that I try to be relatively transparent about, honestly and posting on Twitter. So like, as I mentioned, I used to be an IP attorney. I, I understand relatively well how much value can accrue to IP and how you can leverage IP to build these kind of different business models that all can, that, that all have the potential to compound on one another. So that's like a pretty interesting way to kind of create a new business. That's, that's one of the reasons, one of many reasons why we invested in Pudgy Penguins. Another one, on-chain economies built to be modded and forked. This is something that's a little bit more, I think, medium to long-term, but there was just an announcement for Citadel. Again, both of these were deals that were not, they weren't sexy last year. And that's why we're doing the deep research and chatting with people to try to identify the really strong founders that we can see long-term relationships with. I think another one is genre mixing. This is something that's a little bit less like Web3 or crypto native, but just looking at historically where like the new entrants have come from on mobile. A lot of this is combining genres, right? That kind of reduces switching costs because people are familiar with the two genres that you might be merging, right? Maybe match three and RPG creates a net new experience and you don't necessarily need IP to create a hit. Now, IP can be helpful, but if you're tracking kind of the games that have grossed the most amount of money in the last couple of years, a lot of it comes from genre mixing, especially for new studios that don't have access to global IP. One example of an investment we made there is Fableborn, mobile game, kind of like a base builder meets ARPG. Again, creating an experience that we haven't really seen before and doing some cool things with getting kind of that golden cohort involved through some of the crypto aspects. A couple of the other things that I've been researching, we chatted with some companies out of app monetization. So you've seen this with Supercell, right? Using that example, you've seen it with some other games where, hey, you can go through the app store and buy gems, gold, whatever, or we can direct you to a store, like a browser store, and then you'll save 30% because you don't have to pay that take rate. You see this with Twitter, right? You can pay for Twitter, your Twitter subscription in app. It's like 13 bucks or whatever. And that's eight bucks if you go online, same sort of thing. I'm pretty interested in progressive web apps right now in, in, in that area. I understand there's a lot of limitations on the game side. I also understand that even though you're not subjected to the App Store and the Google Play Store, you're still subjected to the limitations of the browser that you're leveraging. So for example, you may try to monetize your game through the App Store, and then you're subject to the 30% take rate, and you're subject to the rules and regulations, which may include things that are relevant to crypto. Now, you may push a progressive web app, which is, hey, you go to the browser, you install the app on the home screen, and then you're kind of bypassing the App Store. But this is something that is not super new and Apple's familiar with this practice. So obviously they're going to do things to incentivize you to use the app store. But you've seen it with friend tech. You've seen it with draw tech. To me, that this was one of the more interesting things about friend tech, to be honest. It was like, okay, well, how do you monetize in a way that's outside the app store? And you kind of look at the regulations that are being promulgated in the EU. And I think we'll start to see a little bit more of this. Now, again, I, I know there's so many limitations with native app versus progressive web app, but trying to find ways where you have these new financial rails that exist outside the existing system where 
you are kind of growing the pie, growing access, and ideally removing some of the middlemen without hurting your distribution too much. So one, one, one avenue that I see this potentially playing out is, hey, maybe you monetize your free-to-play audience through the app store and through native apps, but then maybe you're monetizing your Web3 audience through PWAs. Looking into it, still kind of early, but that's just to contextualize a little bit. And then the other thing that I'm pretty interested in is like metadata standards. So like, again, drawing on my experience with IP, it's like licensing IP is just an absolute nightmare. And it can take months to a year to get IP licensed that is licensed from a sub-licensed store to into a game, right? You see a little bit more of this in the East where you have mobile games of all genres that bring in popular anime, popular manga, et cetera. In the West, you see it with Fortnite, you're starting to see it with, with Apex. You see it with Overwatch, et cetera. But this is a little bit newer in the West. But I think in a similar way that like ad networks kind of work for you, you have these, these bid, bid, bid auction mechanisms for, for ads and filling ad inventory. I think at some point you'll see this with IP where you have IP that's on chain, you've got this kind of holistic metadata standard, and then people will be bidding to bring that IP into their game for some exclusive time period. Maybe it's not exclusive, et cetera. But I think metadata standards can facilitate that, but there's a handful of steps you have to kind of, or a handful of like bricks or stones you have to kind of plant to pave that path. So for me, it's, okay, where do I think we're going? How do we work backwards from there? How do I still remain reactive to the market? Because again, I don't have a crystal ball, but just trying to see how some of these verticals have played out over the last decade or two, and then trying to identify, okay, well, what can be uniquely enabled by blockchain? And then in a second order effect, have create this, this new experience that, you know, maybe there's a lot of friction before, which prevented it from, from happening. That is fascinating. Now, when we think of the gaming stack, you have games, the studios, platforms, marketplaces, etc. At Shima, do you invest all throughout that stack or do you have like a preference in where, where you spend most of your time looking at? Yeah, I, I would say I'm not super partial. We've invested in content. We've invested in apps. We've invested in infrastructure, stuff on the attribution side, pretty much the full stack. I think for me, content is very difficult. But at the same time, it's very difficult to build gaming infrastructure that is specifically focused on Web3. The market is, it's not massive. So when I'm looking at infrastructure, I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, how does this grow? Is this something that should be wrapped in a Web2 product as well? Is it more of a feature, right? And then trying to identify, okay, well, where's the venture returns here? Is it, if this is just a feature, then like, what's kind of the exit opportunity here? So I think... Long story short, interested in the full stack. I would say there's, I go in waves in terms of what I'm looking for, but we're, we're just looking to back great teams when we think there's unique opportunities. That is well said. I think that stack, it's funny when, when you say it like that, what comes to my mind is that I spoke with a lot of investors focusing on, of course, the layer one, layer two infrastructure of blockchains. And as that gets more and more modular, the main question is where does value accrue throughout that stack? Would you say that the big question gaming is a bit of the same? It's that we have this full gaming stack and we need to figure out where the majority of the value will accrue or do you already have a clear picture of oh, where that's going to happen? No, I, I think that's, I think that you hit the nail on the head. Um, value accrual is one of the most important aspects to a deal, right? Especially if you're, a to if you're a little bit more focused on tokens. There's some great teams building great games or great companies where a token just doesn't make a ton of sense in our opinion. Now, maybe a token does make sense, but sometimes it's, not like if you're using a token as like a credit, right? Like an AWS credit, like why does it make sense for that credit to get more expensive over time? I'm not sure it does. Maybe there's worlds in which it does, but I think it, it really, it really depends on, okay, well, what's the business? And then where does the value accrue to that business? Is it the equity? Is it the IP? How are you going to distribute value to the token holders to maybe the NFT holders? It really depends. So. On the infra side, I think traditionally it's been a little bit more equity focused in terms of building infrastructure for games. Whereas on the infra side, holistically across crypto, I think tokens make a little bit more sense where you're participating in securing that network through staking or whatever. So yeah, difficult question. Is it important? Absolutely. 
Got it. Yeah. And would you be able to give an example from your portfolio to kind of tie this whole previous section together so we understand how you invest and what the thesis behind an investment you made would be? Yeah, I, I think the problem is there's not a ton of games that, that I've invested into at Shima that, that are live today. So we don't necessarily have a token economy that is live, right? So in terms of some of the token designs that I was alluding to, a lot of these things are, um, they've been worked on for the last two years. They're not necessarily public yet. Um, so it's tough to really crystallize this by giving a concrete example. Um, I will say, yeah, it's definitely coming, but, um, I think token design is something that is intimately important to the success of a project. And I think it's something that a lot of people have bypassed by copy pasting, right? Maybe compounds, token design. There's so many gaming protocols that have done that where it just doesn't make any sense because it's a completely different platform. So yeah, probably not the answer you're looking for, but it's coming and maybe, maybe for the next podcast. Yeah, I understand. You mentioned Pudgy Penguins earlier. Are you able to speak about that investment on what it looked like and what the reasons were that got you to want to back them? I'm not sure how deep I can go into the structure of that deal, um, but high level, what what do I like about about Pudgy? They're just they've done a phenomenal job of creating these micro touch points with consumers, right? And if you kind of extrapolate where the world is headed, we're headed for a world of even more content, of abundant content. They can create with a snap of a finger. So a lot of what people are fighting for is mindshare. And I think mindshare is almost like a currency in and of itself. And it's something that I'm evaluating in different contexts across different verticals within gaming, but gaming or consumer. But I think that's one thing that Luca and Pudgy does exceedingly well. They do a great job of staying top of mind. And if you can continue to stay top of mind, right, people can only be thinking about so many things at a given time. And the more micro touch points you kind of create with the end user or the consumer, the greater brand affiliation you're going to create, right? And if you create better brand affiliation, then this is a great way for that IP and that brand to propagate in a relatively mimetic way that Pudgy's done through like the GIFs or GIFs. I forget how you pronounce it, but through those, through the sticker packs and Telegram, et cetera. So yeah, speaking a little bit to why, why we like Pudgy, that, I would say that's, that's one of the reasons. Yeah, they have been doing an incredible job in building a fully household brand where I think most people who on social media like interact with the Pudgy brand have no idea that the project has anything to do with crypto. And that is amazing. That's what we need more of in this space. And going back to what I kind of prefaced this whole session with, which is that what are the core bottlenecks that Web3 gaming needs to open in order for it to be able to move from this early stage innovation phase to more of mass adoption? getting stuff out there that is actually able to scale immensely because the models work. In your opinion, what are the biggest hurdles within Web3 gaming right now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think just a problem with gaming generally is it's extremely difficult to acquire and retain users, right? So how do you go out and acquire users distribution? What are the distribution channels for crypto games? Not a lot, not a lot. So distribution is something that you need to figure out, right? And then retention is another thing, right? Especially where you have a new flavor of the month, every month in crypto, and you have this <laughs> extremely short attention span that bounces between verticals, between projects, et cetera. I think that's something that's very difficult. I think if you can build this golden cohort, then that may be something that you can use to compound upon, right? And maybe that's something where you get the community involved in some unique ways. Maybe you have the playable, then you reward the players for interacting with that and providing feedback. I think Midnight Society is a pretty interesting example here. That's Dr. Disrespect's FPS. They've done something, for those that are not familiar, where you have snapshots. Basically, they kind of take various slices of the game and they get the community involved. And that inevitably kind of ends up creating or curating the game that the gamers who are involved want to play. If you bring your users along for the ride and shaping that game, maybe that's not UGC, but I would argue it's a derivative of UGC, right? If you're really taking the feedback of your core user base, then you're building a product that you already have users for. And I think something that's interesting, just anecdotally speaking, is when I was at NFT NYC a couple of years ago, 
I, I signed up for Midnight Society's event and I stupidly didn't input the like VIP code or whatever. So I waited in the line and the line was like multiple blocks down the street. And I just used it for like market research. I just chatted with people in line. Like I'm a huge Dr. Disrespect fan. I watch a stream all the time. I was like, hey, like does like crypto? Like what, what are you here for? Everybody was a gamer. They just loved Dr. Disrespect. So to me, it's like gamers are going to jump through hoops to play the games they want to play. And we're entering this world where maybe you're not going to IGN or maybe traditional gaming channels to get your, to help form your opinions, but maybe you're going to influencers. Maybe you're going to YouTube, maybe you're going to streamers, maybe you're going to TikTok. And I think there's some unique ways in which you can leverage influencers that are a little bit closer to the community to build that golden cohort and hats off to Midnight Society for, for doing it in the way that they have. And when you find a project that at the surface level looks interesting and you want to start digging deeper into seeing whether it could potentially be an investment, I'd be interested in hearing how data plays into that process. With so many metrics uh, to consider, both financial, alternative, and then also kind of qualitative, not necessarily metrics in the qualitative part, but qualitative aspects as well that you need to consider, what are the main KPIs that you focus on and that you find like most indicative of the potential success of a project? I would say that's another pretty difficult question at Precede. <laughs> a lot of times there is no product. A lot of times maybe there's some slice or some early version of that product, but they haven't really interacted with too many users. And the users that they have interacted with might be friends and family. It might be close friends. So your numbers are skewed, right? You have, you're basically conducting customer interviews with customers that are already predisposed to, you know, say good things. So, I mean, I, I try to use data as much as possible, right? You can use Dune, you can use Nansen, right? Query the chain, as mentioned, I'm, I'm looking at like Steam and all those other kind of data platforms pretty much every single day, obviously token to a little, of course. So for me, I, I try to do the research first form a little bit of an opinion, then look for specific projects rather than being opportunistic with every call or every kind of deck that comes across my desk. So I think that's one way to kind of filter where it's like, okay, here are some things that are a little bit underexplored or maybe a little bit non-consensus. Is there something here? And then going out and looking for almost what looks like a coat-like community, right? So why is that important? I think it's important because when you have this cult-like community, sometimes that exists in like the spec speculator or the gambler sort of archetype, but you can kind of cut through that, right? You go into a discord, you see what percentage of people are asking when whitelist or when token, you kind of know what you're dealing with there. In contrast, you can go into a discord and be like, okay, these people are talking about the game. They're talking about whatever, like something deeper than price action. Okay. Maybe there's something there. So a lot of this is like digging into the communities and figuring out who are the foundational members of that community, right? If I go to like a GM chat, is the community manager saying GM every day? Or if I go in, is it the same 10 users every day? Or does that change? Obviously, these are not like single data points where it's like, all right, ape. But it's, it's all these little data points are ways in which you can build a little bit more of a... Um, detailed picture about what this potential project looks like. But again, it, it's so difficult at Precede. There's really not a lot of data that we're going off of. So a lot of this is going deep into conversations with the founders to identify how they're thinking about the space, right? Okay, you haven't built this yet. You haven't done your go-to-market yet, but like, how are you going to go out and talk with your users? How are you going to acquire those users? How is your game going to differentiate in a world where let's assume it's successful and then you have somebody who has hundreds of millions of dollars that is going to clone your game, right? How are you going to retain your users in that sort of instance? So just like kind of stepping through those thought exercises in a world where we can, or in a way in which we can understand the thought process behind the founder, even when there's not a ton of data, is a couple of the ways in which we pursue investments. Yeah, very well said. It is not easy at that stage because data isn't necessarily there. So it's much more of a qualitative approach maybe to analyzing what, what's going on in that space. Do you feel that, and thank you for name dropping Token Terminal there, we still have a lot of work to do in better covering the gaming market, but you know, that is pretty high on our focus area. So we'll be getting there, <laughs> hopefully higher up on that list of tools that uh, you'll be using in the future as well. 
But on the qualitative side of things, because what you mentioned about like Discord channels and stuff, those are pretty hard to standardize in a way that they'd be comparable between projects other than you actually just going into the Discord and comparing them in real time. Is there something that, say, from a qualitative point of view that a data provider like us could put together that could be valuable for you? Like something that we could do at scale that you would like really like to use to understand projects better? I think there's some products that can be built. Analytics are are super helpful. I think the the big issue is like, how do you kind of attribute certain actions on chain to things that are happening with that project that might exist off chain? I think kind of bridging that gap is something that's somewhat interesting. Another portfolio company, Third Wave, is going pretty deep in the gaming analytics specifically. And they're doing some super cool things there where you can kind of understand the archetypes of wallets and then identify how those wallets react to different events. Yeah, I think a big part of this is not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but understanding, okay, what, what types of products would be helpful to not just investors, but also maybe people building games. And then how do you create that so they can more quickly iterate and get to market and test their products out? So I think we'll see a lot of cool things with looking at the open AI, like Kino with like GPTs, where you can kind of run simulations at scale to identify, okay, here's how users may react to certain instances of things that happen on chain, but simulations can only get you so far, right? Theory is different than practice. Yeah. Got it. And and then a final question, how do you work with your portfolio companies? Uh, in addition to providing cap capital, how actively are you working with them on a day-to-day -day basis and actually building the business or? Yeah, I would say we're extremely active. We work with portfolio companies every single day. Again, it, it depends, right? Different portcos have different needs. Sometimes it's a little bit more lighter touch where we're talking about the market, talking, help them with fundraise, you know, helping them just relay what the state of things look like from the seat that we sit in. Other times talking about token design, talking about core loops within the game, talking about ways to monetize by touching the chain or touching blockchain rails in unique ways, really full spectrum. And then also, again, talking through like, how do we, how do you launch the project, right? Like the go-to-market that I was talking to earlier. So one of my previous jobs, I, I worked on token sales at Coinlist. So at Coinlist, right, a big part was, okay, how do you do distribution? How do you get more people involved outside of investors? What exactly does the pricing look like? Those sorts of things. So kind of just stepping through the entire life cycle of this new kind of um, strategy of releasing, of releasing a token, releasing NFTs, and basically just connecting with users in a new way where you have kind of these newfound stakeholders that have ownership over this protocol or platform in a world in a way that didn't previously exist. That, that's really good. And I'd say given both your background and how holistically you are looking at this market and the direction that it's going into, that's incredibly valuable for the project that you back as well. So you are in a really great position there. But thank you so much, Alex, for taking the time to give us this high level overview of the Web3 gaming market. I hope we can at some point in the future dive in dive even deeper into some of these verticals and topics that we touched on here. But it's a great introduction. Uh, big fan of what you guys are doing at Shima Capital, both in gaming and outside of that. So keep doing great work. Awesome. Appreciate it. Always happy to come on and I'll be keeping tabs on Token Terminal and excited for the, the gaming developments as they come.